Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. So I know we had to take a little bit of a left turn last week to go over some information that I just didn't think we really talked about too much, and that was with registered dietitians and nutritionist coding. But as promised, I wanted to bring you the question and answer, hopefully, on pre-op visits because there's some confusion out there, and I'm starting to see payers take some uh, reimbursement back, and I don't want you to get caught into a trap of thinking you can bill every little thing that happens. And we also get doctors sometimes that say, well, my PA or my nurse practitioner is providing the service. Well, remember, they're basically what we call guilt by association. If you've got a PA or a nurse practitioner in your practice, they're not only the same specialty, but they're a mid-level provider. And if you're billing anything under incident two, it's just like as if the physician did it. So it would be as if you did it the provider uh, when it comes to pre-ops. And so let's just see if it is allowed, if it's appropriate, and let's make sure we have the clear definition of understanding pre-op visits versus pre-op clearance visits and which are billable. So I talked about this a little bit with Sean Weiss when we did our hashtag Terry Tuesday episode uh, a couple weeks ago, but I didn't go into much depth or give any kind of really cited information. So I wanted to do that for you. So this question that comes up all the time, should we or shouldn't we, or are we even allowed to bill pre-op visits? Well, first, again, it depends what you mean by pre-op visits. Are you talking about a visit performed by the surgeon or the surgeon's qualified healthcare provider, somebody who can independently bill E&M codes, or a provider not involved in the surgery? So if it was a decision to, made to perform the surgery at the encounter we're talking about, whether initial, initial or follow-up, then obviously that's with this 57 modifier. That's a decision for surgery and it is billable. But if the patient's coming in for, and this is where we have to be very clear, if they're coming in for a history and physical or a pre-op, and I'm air quoting, to obtain consents and answer questions that the patient may have that didn't get answered at the original encounter when you scheduled the surgery, this encounter is not billable. It's included in the reimbursement for surgery because remember in the RVUs, the relative value units, the work value for all surgeries with a 90-day global period, there's a pre and post-op work included for that encounter. It would be considered double dipping if you try to bill for it and, be, and being paid twice. Many have the opinion that technically, if this encounter happens more than two days before surgery, that you could bill it, but ethically you probably should not. And I would disagree. You shouldn't at all cost because there's no CPT for a non-billable H&P encounter that's really a, cons- a you know a, an informed consent visit. Some providers are choosing to use the post-op code 99024 to track the frequency um, associated with these pre-ops. Others have created a pre-op placeholder code so they can track, especially if you've got providers built on RVUs when your EMR allows for it. No dollar figure attached to either. And some practices don't track these encounters at all, which I think is a mistake. I think you need to at least track them when the patient's coming in. But again, let's take a look. A pre-op visit is basically administrative. It means the patient's coming in to get their paperwork, to talk about you know, home health potential, to get their scripts that they might need post-surgery. That's already, the surgery is already scheduled. Maybe they have a couple of questions again about recovery, but you've already gone over that when you got the consent. 
So now let's look at a pre-op clearance, and that's a little bit different. That would not be done by the surgeon, first of all, or the PR and nurse practitioner practicing under the surgeon. A surgical pre-op clearance is where a specialist, typically a primary care cardiologist or internal medicine, they're now clearing the patient for surgery. Let's say you've got a patient with congestive heart failure and they're scheduled for a total right knee replacement under general, general anesthesia. The surgeon and the anesthesiologist may need a clearance from the patient's cardiologist to make sure there's no conflict because remember, general anesthesia has something to do also with breathing and it impacts the patient's breathing. Um, the cardiologist is not performing the surgery, most likely follows the patient for that condition, and so they aren't part of that global surgery package. So they can code the pre-op clearance with the appropriate code and the ICD-9 guidelines. So, and this is what it says in the ICD-10 general guidelines. It's under section um, four, item, item M as in Mary, quote, patients receiving pre-op evaluations only. For patients receiving pre-op evaluations only, sequence first the code from subcategory Z. So it would be Z01.8.1 and then if it is, you know, first, second, or which encounter, so be zero for this one. Encounter for pre-procedural examinations to describe the pre-op consult. Assign a code for the condition to describe the reason for the surgery as addition, additional code. So in this case, it would be M17.11 um, because patient had right knee osteoarthritis. And then you assign the code um, for any kind of pre-op evaluation, why it's in there. And because of the congestive heart failure, I assigned I50.9. So that's that hypothetical case. That's how you would sign, that's how you would code that. Now, another scenario comes up, or I should say another question that people try to code for a pre-op is when there's hospital administrative mandates, meaning that they require that you do an HMP 30 days, within 30 days of taking patients to the OR. Well, people are saying, well, if it's more than 48 hours you know, prior to surgery, can we bill that? The same thing applies. This is not billable. Um, and this was addressed by AMA CPT assistant in 2008. It was the two th May 2008, volume 19, issue five, pages nine and 11, which means everybody, that's not just Medicare. It says if the decision for surgery occurs the day of or before the major procedure and includes the pre-op evaluation and management service, then this is this visit is separately reportable. They're saying that if it was decision for surgery, so they're saying modifier 57 would be appended. Um, if the surgeon sees the patient makes a decision for surgery and then the patient returns for a visit, where the intent of the visit is a pre-op HMP, this service occurs in the interval between the decision-making visit and the day of surgery. And it even says, regardless of when the visit occurs, one day, three days, or two weeks, the visit is not separately billable as it's included in the surgical package. That's pretty clear. I mean, they're saying, you know, regardless of what their entry is for that 24, 48 hour, if it's a service with the same diagnosis and it's not part of decision-making, patients coming in as an interval visit, again, just to go over things, it's not billable. So it says the surgeon sees the patient on March 1st and makes a decision for surgery. Surgery is scheduled for April 1st. Patient returns to the office on March 27th for the HMP, signs a consent, asks any, and is asked any clarifying additional questions. That's not billable. It's the pre-op HMP included in the surgical package. Now, once the decision is made to proceed with surgery, the subsequent visits related to that procedure 
again are included in that 90-day surgical package. Now, there are some cases where a patient may be a candidate for that um, for a surgical procedure, but they have medical issues. So I mentioned CHF, they could have some other cardiac disease, they could have asthma, or they could be on Coumadin, and so we have to adjust the anticoagulant uh, medication. And so that does require a medical evaluation to determine if they are healthy enough for surgery. But that's a medical clearance, and they go back to their primary care or the doctor that's following them that, or you know, you have to set them up for a surgery. But make sure it's not setting up for just routinely if the patient doesn't show signs of an issue. One thing to remember is that utilizing mid-level providers in a surgery practice to try and get pre-ops, they're again considered the same specialty. They're not providing a medical clearance, they're basically reiterating what the original encounter discussion was. And there's no medical necessity for billing an administrative visit for duplication you know, home health referrals, prescriptions, disability forms. I mean, you might charge cash for filling those things out, but it's not an insurance company um, visit. Now here's what Medicare says, and they've weighed in on pre-op visits as well. And this comes out of section 15047 for pre-op services. So it's A through D and general says, this is addressing payment for pre-op services that are not included in the global surgery payment. And I want you to listen closely because these sections all say something similar that you have to pay attention to because if it's not addressed, then it could be considered acting in bad faith. So first it says pre-op visits non-global. So they're saying that consists of evaluation and management service that are not included in the global package and diagnostic tests performed. And this is what they say, for the purpose of evaluating the patient's risk of preoperative complications and optimizing preoperative care. So what the perioperative care. So what they're basically saying, it's only medically necessary if this patient for their particular clinical profile needs to have that clearance to evaluate the risk of even having it. That's a pre-op clearance, not a pre-op visit. Then they go on to say AM services performed that are not included in the package for the purpose of evaluating a patient's risk of perioperative complications and to op- optimize perioperative care. Again, they're saying that could be billed, new established consult, but that's what it's for. Then they go on to talk about diagnostic tests performed to determine a patient's perioperative risk and optimize perioperative care. So they're all talking about the risk. There's a theme there. The theme is clear that for a pre-op to be considered billable, it has to be a clearance because first they ha- they're doing it to evaluate the patient's risk, not to bring them in for a routine informed consent for a surgery that's already been scheduled. So that's something that hopefully can maybe, you know, shed some light on what, you were, what you're dealing with or have a light bulb over your head. But I'm seeing a lot of these services being billed when it's not medically indicated or it goes against, um, you know, published policy on when the pre-ops should be actually reported. Codecast podcast today is brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Laguna Niguel. Come in today and drive your favorite car. Mercedes-Benz of Laguna Niguel. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to do today is give you a coding question that has come quite a bit. And this one is kind of interesting. Um, It really talks about coding for, let me pull it up here, coding for chronic condition versus acute condition. And I actually feel bad because one of my coding quarter clients sent me something and said, 
Hey, Terry, would you consider pregnancy a chronic illness? And I thought she was kidding. I'm like, is this a joke? No, I would not consider pregnancy a chronic illness. I would consider it a self-limiting condition. Now, if they develop a chronic condition during the pregnancy, now you have a possible, you know, upcode or add-on that the physician has to address. And I even apologize, said, this is funny because I actually did laugh. I apologize, but I'm not sure how it can be considered chronic because chronic means that the patient um, refer, continues to suffer from something over an extended period of time, and it's usually long-lasting, and it doesn't go away uh, easily or quickly. And chronic is, they even say, this is the opposite of acute. So it could be acute because routinely pregnancy lasts 32 to 40 weeks, and then you're no longer pregnant, and you know when the condition is going to come to an end. But to call it chronic makes absolutely no no sense to me. So then she sent me the paper from the Society of Maternal and Fetal Medicine, and they actually called it a chronic condition. I'm like, what? So I looked it up, and I disagree. So it's really something, you're, if that's what you want to follow, that is the, you know, the body published guidance. I mean, I, I can't stop you because they published it, if that's what it is. But for me, I would have a hard time supporting that. How can pregnancy be chronic? I mean, if you're going to be pregnant forever and never deliver the the baby or the, you know, the, the fetus, that doesn't make sense to me. So I would actually question that. There's a lot of things sometimes that the AHA or bodies like that, you know, governing bodies say that you think, what? So we had this with COVID. Remember, they were saying, oh, even if you had a test that was negative, if the doctor thought that you looked positive, then you're positive. And I'm like, no, 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 we can't just assume somebody is when they test negative. So some of these things that are now popping up like this, I think it's just to potentially upcode and I don't want to see you do that. So I would talk to your physicians and if that ever comes up, if you're an OBGYN practice and say, hey, what do you think about this? Let's have a consensus on how we're going to deal with it. Because I just think that's suspect. But I have to give you what is being said out there. So that's going to be up to you how you handle that. Okay, everyone. Well, that's it for me this week. I hope you found it interesting and can't wait to see you next week. And I hope you're trying to stay out of this heat. We've been over 100 degrees for the last five days here in Southern California. And I'm ready for some relief. Even trying to get in our pool uh, has been interesting because it's been over 90 degrees. That's not refreshing. <laughs> so anyway, everyone make it a great day. Great rest of your week. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer Assassin Music.